The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 20. Our study of the Ten Commandments has brought us into the second table of the law, and we are continuing to study the Sixth Commandment. All of the commandments teach us the nature of God because in each of them we see a reflection of the way that God treats His creatures that He divinely favors. In Genesis we read that God created man and that He breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. And when God breathed into man, that's when it was determined that man would have a continual existence, a permanent existence. God wants to keep us alive. He wants to keep us alive. And what is more than the nature of God himself than life? God is everlasting. He is forever. And he intended that the creature that he made would live and worship him forever. But as we know, there is a problem with uh, the plan, not with the plan itself, but things seem to go awry, at least in our thinking of things, that the tempter came and he spoiled what appeared to be a very good plan, and he tempted Adam to sin against God, and through that sin, death passed upon all men. And I don't want you to think that God was surprised by what Satan did and was unprepared for what Adam would do, Because God knew from the beginning what Adam would do because he is the omniscient God. And we also know that the scriptures are very clear about this, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was also prepared before the foundation of the world, before the world was ever created to affect the redemption of fallen man. Peter wrote that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And the Bible says that he was manifested in due time and he came to be a way of life, a way of salvation to everyone that believes in him. And so, yes, God did anticipate the fall. His planning and his purposes included it. And by Adam's fall, God would receive his greatest glory in man's redemption. The plan of God is a plan of life, He is committed to life, to preserving human life, which he does through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. And so thus we find in the tables of the law a command that says that we shall not take life. That's in the 13th verse. The scripture says simply, thou shalt not kill. Now, in two previous messages, we've discussed the intent of the command. We've learned um, the definition of it. The King James Version says, Thou shalt not kill. But we know from the original Hebrew that the exact intent of that is, Thou shalt not, or you shall do no murder. The command is about the willful, malicious act of taking another person's life. It may include taking a life through carelessness, when we might not have actually had an intent, but it teaches us that we ought to revere human life, that we are always to be circumspect, that we don't do anything that would cause harm to another person. And then we also discuss that this command is very specific. It affords no support against taking life in lawful ways, 
For example, the Bible teaches that in cases of murder and in some other types of crimes, that the government is to take action against that person who commits those and to execute a person who murders another person. The government is to take that action. The Hebrew word here for kill in this verse, though, is never used in cases of capital punishment. We don't find it used that way in the Bible. It's never used for war. It's never used of God or His elect angels in the acts of punishing men. And so the command is about the unlawful taking of life. The Bible says that it's murder. And when you take a human life, Because you do disrespect life, then you do as Campbell Morgan said, you set up the wit and wisdom of man to be above God. And surely we would have to say that today we put our wisdom above God when we cold-heartedly allow abortion on demand, when we allow assisted suicide, when we say that these things are our right, then we put ourselves above the wisdom of God, the one who gave us life. He said... You shall not. Now today in this third part of the study, I'd like for us to look a little more closely at the ways that this commandment applies. Most of us, I think, would believe that of all the commandments that God has given, this is probably the easiest one for us to keep. I doubt that any of you has ever taken a human life. Or at least none of you have ever plotted against a person and just purposely and with malicious intent that you've killed another person. I don't know if I've ever preached a sermon where there may have been someone in the congregation who was guilty of murder. I know that a few weeks ago, Jorge went down to the prison at Avenal, and he preached a message down there. And I know that there were murderers in that congregation, that, that group of men that heard him speak. So he's done something that I haven't done. I've never, I don't think, knowingly, preached to someone who was a murderer. Most of us would say that we've never broken this command. And, and uh, we admit that we've broken other commands, but not this one. And so we think this is probably the easiest one for us to keep. Now, thus far, we've discussed the crime of murder and the contrast to murder. And now in this third message, the third point of this message is your contribution to murder. Now, those of you that are familiar with Jesus' teachings, you know that there's none of us that is safe from the crime of murder. Now, repeatedly in these expositions of the Ten Commandments, I've told you none of the commandments are easy. None of these are easily conquered. Not one of them has gone unbroken by any person in this room. And not only that, but we struggle every day with these commandments. Even Christians here today, and all of us, I think most of us, at least as far as I know, are Christians, we in fact do struggle with every one of these commands, and without the satisfaction of Christ for our sins to be the satisfaction of God's law, we would be deserving of death because of the sixth commandment. But how is that possible? How could the sixth commandment condemn you if you've never actually struck a blow to kill another person? Arthur Pink, in his analysis of the commandments, explains this commandment is not restricted to forbidding the actual crime of murder. It prohibits all the degrees and causes of it as rash anger and hatred, slanders and revenge. Whatever may prejudice the safety of our neighbors or tempt us to see him perish when it is in our power to relieve 
and rescue him. Now that last part, when it's in our power to relieve and rescue him, that has profound implications for every Christian that is in this room. Christians are far too often guilty of breaking this commandment. And we wonder, how did Pink get such a sweeping, comprehensive view of this commandment and what it means? How does he actually say more than verse number 13 of Exodus 20 says? Well, let's see if we can find out how he says that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, where we read the greatest sermon that was preached. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And it's Jesus' manifesto of his kingdom. And his sermon is about the way that God sees things. And very often God sees things much differently than we do. And he sees us differently than we see ourselves. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus attracted huge crowds from every corner of Israel. They came from Galilee, from Decapolis, they came from Judea and beyond Jordan, from border to border in Israel, and beyond Israel, they came to hear Jesus teach. And honestly, they, they were more interested in the healing miracles that he did. They loved to watch him cast out the demons, and especially they liked being fed. He would feed the people. And they were more interested in Jesus for those things than they were for his religious views. But Jesus didn't heal people and feed them just to be doing it. He did enough just to show his power, now if, that he was the Son of God. Now, if healing was all that he intended to do, then all he would have to do is gather the crowds and wave his hands over all of them, and they would be healed. But that wasn't his purpose. His goal was to teach them and show them that he is the living Word of God, that the truths that he taught were the right, the right thing, that they ran contrary to the expositions of the religious leaders. And so he put down their interpretations of God's law at every turn. And most notably, he showed the religious elite that they were as guilty as breaking, of breaking the commands as the poor people that they condemned. And so in this sermon, he showed them how the law should be interpreted. And this is just huge, because they thought that they had it right. In their minds, they were right, and they needed to be right because the commandments were the center of Jewish religion. In fact, they believed that their salvation was found in these commandments. Let me just read to you from a contemporary Jewish writer as concerning salvation. This person wrote, Eternal life with God in the world to come requires of Jews only that they love and fearfully revere God and keep God's commandments. Not limited to Jews, however. Salvation for all other people depends upon, only upon, their individual ethical behavior, according to Jewish tradition. Now, first of all, that statement is a rejection of salvation by grace through faith. It's a rejection of the Messiah who brings personal salvation. And so now, and in Jesus' time, to the Jews... The key to salvation is keeping these commandments. And having a right interpretation of those commandments is of paramount importance because the moral and ethical interpretations of the law would determine their salvation. So what if a person comes along and tells them that their ethical interpretations don't go far enough? What if that person tells them, as Romans says, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? And that's actually the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is teaching the Jews that all have come short of God's glory. All the religious leaders have not kept the law. They are also short of God's glory. They fell short because they had a wrong interpretation. They were too low in their standard. And so there was no way that they could be righteous with God. And so in this sermon, Jesus refuted many of the Pharisaical interpretations. And the sixth commandment is one of them. They were like most of us. They thought that if a person could restrain himself from the physical, external act of murder, they'd kept the commandment. Now what I'm trying to do is to set you up for what Jesus would say to you and what he says to them on this point. The high standard of the law, as interpreted by Jesus, was too much for them. And so they reinterpreted the law and they lowered the standard to one that they could keep. The intent of the law had never changed. Jesus didn't change it. He just interpreted correctly. They lowered the standard to make themselves look good. Now their low standard included only the outward act. That if you don't hit somebody over the head with a brick and kill them, then you're safe on the sixth commandment. Jesus said that standard's too low. Their standard was about the external form. But Jesus went deeper. He went down to the intents of the heart. They were content to stay on the outside. But Jesus wanted to go to the inside. And so verses 21 and 22 are his exposition of the sixth commandment. He said, You have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now the Pharisees had a problem that was common with today's Bible students. They didn't hear what God said. They heard what somebody said, that God said. And the Pharisees had heard from those of old time that were consistently wrong in their interpretation of Scripture. And the old timers that Jesus is talking about is not the prophets. It's not Moses or Jeremiah or Elijah. These are their doctors of the law that actually go back to about the time of Ezra and there are men also that came from the intertestamental period when there was no true prophet in Israel. Some of these men that Jesus talks about were their contemporaries. They were, had, they were old men that were teaching in the rabbinical schools. And, and sometimes those men that taught differed from one another. They had different interpretations and they had different schools of thought. They had different followers, but none of them had actually hit on the truth. They just kept perpetuating bad doctrine, like many people do today. And when you keep saying bad doctrine and you keep teaching it, people believe it because it's been said so much. Now, I tell you this because Jesus was not specifically against the Old Testament prophets, not like Moses, not like Jeremiah. The law that Moses had was the law that was given by Christ. And so he wasn't going to differ from that in any way. He only told them what God intended when God chiseled those commandments into the tables of stone. So never think that what Jesus did was to relax the Old Testament law. What Jesus did was to intensify it, 
to exponentially increase the common standard favored by the Jews. They said what they thought. And Jesus immediately retorted with, But I say unto you, Jesus spoke by no authority but his own. Those rabbis, those Pharisees, were speaking under the authority of others, what somebody else said. But Jesus said, But I say unto you. And you don't tell the person who made the law what the law means. And so when Jesus talked the law, taught the law to them and showed them the right interpretation, self-righteousness was a thing of the past. And so in six statements, in six places that are representative of the wrong interpretations, he showed them that the law had such high standards they couldn't keep them. Now let's look at what he says one more time. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Now the question then, is murder only an external act? Jesus said that there are other ways that you can commit it. How? What are the other ways that you can commit murder? Well, first, Jesus told them that you can commit murder in temper. Now, an interesting assessment of Jewish interpretation shows that they had little, their teachings had little or, or nothing to do with God's judgment. It's how they judged, how men would judge. If you kill, then you'll be taken to judgment. And they weren't referring to God's judgment. They were referring to man's judgment. They were concerned about keeping their standard. Can we keep our standard? They weren't really concerned about whether what they did was against God's character of holiness. So they told the people a half-truth. If you murder, you will be taken to a court of law. Now, that's true. They were concerned only, though, with self-justification. As long as they met their standard, they were okay. And that's no different from religion today. I'll be okay if I keep up with the list of externals. I'll be okay if I can just check off the list all the good things that I think that people should do. That's essentially what that modern Jewish writer said that I read a moment ago. The ethical and moral standards of the law, that's the thing that's going to save you. But Jesus wasn't concerned with that. He wanted to know about your heart. What about the attitude that is behind everything that you do? What do you think? What are your thought processes behind what you do? And his idea is that hatred of your heart, the malice of your heart, the evil intent of your heart is also murder. That murder begins in the heart and it blossoms almost entirely from a root that is called anger. And so he says, if you are angry without a cause, meaning without a just cause, that it's the same as murder. Now you think about that for just a minute. You think about your own life. How many times have you just, you do, just fly off the handle and you lash out at people and the cause for doing it is so slight that you feel like a fool a a afterwards? Well, were the Jews right about this? Were they right? Would murder of that sort be dealt with in a court of law? Well, I, I've never heard of a person being convicted and sent to jail and executed for anger. If a DA presented a case before the judge, and the judge says, all right, what is he charged with? And the DA says, 
Well, he's an angry person. Throw the book at him. Execute him. He's just angry. Well, the judge would look at the DA. He'd throw the case out. He'd throw the man out and say, don't ever come back here with that nonsense again. Don't waste the court's time. That's what we would say in our court, but not so in God's courtroom, because in God's courtroom there is a just charge. Jesus said that you'll come before God's tribunal. You'll not escape the charge of murder. You'll be convicted and you'll be condemned to death. And the sentence for it is horrible. The sentence is death in the fires of hell. That's tough. Very tough. Who can live by such a high standard? Nobody here has. Oh, you might not have stabbed a person to death, but each of us has been angry. We're guilty of violating God's law. Who can live by such a high standard? And that's the very point that Jesus was trying to make. And so if you'll just look down a few verses at verse number 48, he said, here is the standard. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now on Sunday nights, I've been preaching a series on the office of the pastor. And on a couple of occasions, I've told you that the messages are are personal. At times, they're very personal because, of course, I'm preaching about the office that I hold. And I've said as I preach the messages, I don't want to be self-serving. I don't want you to think that I'm God's gift to humanity. So maybe it's good for me to stop sometimes and tell you that I'm not perfect. My wife's sitting back there, ask her, and she'll let you know. I'm not perfect. So I'll tell you a couple of things uh, about me, about some things that happened a long time ago. When I was growing up, I was involved in two fist fights. That's not many, but that's because you know I'm a lover, not a fighter. So, uh, but despite my, my good nature, I was involved in two fist fights, and both of them were ill-advised, especially the first one. The first one was a fight with the son of the police chief of Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, he, he lived on the street that was behind me. Both of us were in the same grade, went to the same school, and in the same class, and he was a smart aleck kid who thought that he was really something big because he was the police chief's son, and he was really tough. And I thought that it was my sworn duty to show him that preacher's kids are also tough and that uh, I could prove that to him. We are as tough as police chief's kids. Now, unfortunately, it didn't work out so well because the fight ended in a draw. And let's just leave it that way because I didn't want to start my career 0-1. So we've got a draw. Well, the next fight actually turned more in my favor. The first fight was in the fifth grade. The second was in the seventh grade. And in those ensuing two years, the two years of time, I'd honed my skills somewhat. And I I learned the element of surprise. Uh, During the school day, I was arguing with this this other uh, kid in the school. And uh, I was very angry about it. We were arguing. And uh, at the end of the day, he thought it was the end of it. I didn't think it was the end of it. And so I followed him home from school. And so I was coming up behind him. He didn't know I was there. And so I came up behind him and I threw my books on the ground with a loud thud and I yelled at him and turned him to turn around because we were going to fight. And it scared him so bad that the fight was over before it started. And so I, I landed a Muhammad Ali punch on Sonny Liston and in less than 143 he was down. And, and I'd won that fight. Now let me tell you something about that. Anger will make you in danger of hellfire. All of us here have felt that way at some time or another. Maybe you didn't throw the punch, but you sure would like to. You grit your teeth, 
you set your jaw, you, you knocked, I mean, you, you just clenched your fist, and in your heart and in your mind, you knocked their lights out. And for all of you who won't throw the punch, you can just live through me vicariously. And that, according to Jesus, is the sin of murder. The temper flares and there's murder in the heart. That's a high standard. And it's impossible for humans to keep. And so if you say, well, no, no, I've never felt that way, then I'll just remind you, all liars go to hell too. (laughs) Sometimes, this is what happens. Anger boils over and it becomes the external act. God said to Cain, why are you so wroth? Why is your countenance falling? And that word wroth means to blaze with rage. Murder starts in the heart. It's a heart thing. And the root of murder, according to Jesus, is guilt as much as the act. Now hold on, though, because Jesus is not through with us yet. He's about to raise this bar even higher. And so in verse 22, he said, And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, some of you hear the story that I've just told, and so you're thinking, well, what what a little brat he must have been. I mean, he's a little hellion. I've never done anything like that. So, Jesus is going to nail you. And so, I can see him looking at these self-righteous Pharisees and their smugness, and they have their exquisite, expensive robes that they're wearing, the tassels all around the garment, and they're holding up their noses and sticking out their chest in the pride of their perfections. And then Jesus sternly looks at them and he says, you can murder in your temper and you can murder in your tongue. Now, James has something interesting to say about the tongue. Hold your place here and let's go to James chapter 3. And before I read the third chapter, let me go back to anger for just a minute. James has something to say about that too in the first chapter. He said, wherefore, my beloved brethren... Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. There's a good reason for Christians not to get angry. You know what it is? You don't want to be guilty of murder. Be slow to wrath. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And then James goes on to back up Jesus' teachings in the third chapter as well. Verses 5 and 6. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. The tongue, he says, is a small member of your body, but it can start a raging fire. In the wildfires of Lake County and Cobb Mountain, Middletown, last year, they said that the massive fire was started by a spark from faulty wiring in a hot tub. And that little spark drove thousands from their homes and destroyed thousands upon thousands of acres. The tongue is a little member. It's set on fire of hell. People are killed in fires, aren't they? Somebody discards a cigarette. Somebody throws away a smoldering match. And as they say, all hell breaks loose. And just like that, the Bible says that what you speak can set things on fire. And you can be guilty of murder. 
Now he says, if you say Raka, I ask you to raise your hand. How many of you have said Raka? Anybody here said Raka? All right, one, okay. Somebody said Raka. What does that mean? Well, these, these are words that nobody mistakes what they mean. This is what this stands for. These are words that are meant to deride and cause harm. I grew up in the South in the 50s and the 60s, and a common word then was a word that nobody uses anymore. We don't say it. We dare not say it. We describe it only as an N-word. Everybody knows that you shouldn't say it. It's never a good word. Today, you're going to be skewered. You're going to be labeled a hater. You are a despicable person if you use that word. I'm not going to defend the word. It's terrible. You shouldn't say it. That's a word that is against man, and because it slanders him, it's also against God, because man is made in the image of God. But what about those words? I mean, I have to ask this question. What about the words that we use that are directly aimed at God? Why isn't everyone outraged when somebody uses God's name that way? Are we better people because we don't use the N-word, but we have no shame about blaspheming God's name? I think that any person who uses God's name as a swear word ought to be a social pariah. But there are words that we use against people that everybody understands. These are words that are used to hurt, and so we have an attitude of the heart that says, I'm better than you. You don't count. You're beneath me. I remember when I was in junior high, and for Californians, the uninitiated, that's, that's middle school today, I think. And it's about that time that I had that now famous fight where I threw the one punch and beat up the kid. Back then it was popular to call someone that you didn't like a rat fink. I haven't heard anybody use that word for a long, long time. Uh, a rat fink was a filthy, disgusting little mouse. It originated when an artist who didn't like Mickey Mouse drew it as its evil counterpart, and he called that a rat fink. That got picked up, and so if you didn't like somebody, uh, the, one of the worst names that you could call him was a rat fink. And so 50 years ago, that was a popular way uh, to, to put people down. You called him a rat fink. Now, here's my point. Here's my point about that. 2,000 years have passed since the time that Jesus said, don't say raka. And that's why you might ask me, well, what does that mean? The truth is nobody knows exactly what it means. The meaning has been lost to us. Someone has said that raka means like saying, you are a vain fellow. Now, what if I said to you, well, you sure are a vain fellow. Would that bother you a whole lot? Well, no, that sounds rather British, doesn't it? My good man, you are a vain fellow. Now, most of us are a whole lot better at getting under people's skin than to say that. You know how to gouge somebody. You know how to get at them. You know how to put them down in the worst way possible. In Jesus' time, the word raka was like the N-word today. It's the worst of all put-downs. I guess it's the R-word of his time. Now the point is that these are words that come from an evil heart. They come from the bad intent of the heart towards people. And Jesus said that kind of thing is murder. Verse 19 of Matthew 15, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. And then look at what he says. He said, if you say you are a fool to someone, you are in danger of hell fire. That word fool in the Greek is the word moros. Same word from which we get moron. 
If you call someone a moron, he said, you are in danger of hell fire. Now, I look at that and I say, I am in big trouble. I am in big trouble. If you get in the car with me and you ride with me, you would think that this is a necessary part of driver education. Because everybody that drives slower than me is a moron. And I don't mind telling them that they're a moron, at least under my breath. I don't use hand signals like many of you do, but I admit many times I say moron. Many years ago when I was a young man, my brother and I were uh, in Seattle, and he was driving, and there was a guy that cut him off and flashed him the all-too-familiar hand signal. And my brother took mild exception at that, he didn't like someone saying raka to him, or at least I thought it was something like raka. I'm not quite too sure what he said. But when we stopped at the next light, our, our car, we pulled up beside him at the next light, and my brother got out of the car. And he walked up to the other man's window. And the moron rolled his window down. And so he puts the window down, and my brother, bam, right in his face with his fist. We got out of there as fast as the Seattle Supersonics. <laughs> I don't recommend that type of driving adequate. I didn't do that. I didn't do it, but he did. But I'm afraid if he didn't repent of that, he's in danger of hellfire. And if you do it, if you do it, I promise first I'll come visit you in jail. Then I'll say hello to you on your way to hell as you go by. Now we're getting a little bit close on time, but I have one more comment that I'd like to make about this. And I do think this is good for church members. By what I've said, maybe, maybe when I started out at least, you, you were thinking, well, I, I'm doing okay. I'm pretty sure I'm not guilty of murder. We're good people. We meet the standard. No hand signals. No road rage. But then there may be something else wrong. I didn't make a blank on your listening sheet for today, so you can do the work of just adding this one. I'm going to call this one murder by tidbit. Christians like to pass out little tidbits of information about others. So murder by temper, murder by tongue, and perhaps to amplify that last one a little bit, murder by tidbit. And I think that you may recognize it as murder by gossip. These are the rumor starters and the rumor sharers. You ever notice that nobody shares good gossip? Good gossip isn't interesting. We prefer refer the salacious details. I mean, the... The, the true or the untrue, it doesn't matter. We just like to tell it. And the more salacious that it is, the better that we like it. Here's a few verses from Proverbs for you. Proverbs eleven thirteen: A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Proverbs 13, 3. He that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life, but he that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs 16, 27, An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is as a burning fire. Proverbs 17, verse 9, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. Proverbs 18, 8, The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Years ago, in a little town in the wheat fields of Kansas, my grandmother was a telephone operator. All of the calls that came into the community were routed through her little switchboard where she physically pulled a jack out of one plug and plugged it into another and all the calls of the community came through her switchboard and she got to hear everything that went on everywhere. 
Those of you, how many of you remember the old party lines? You're old enough to remember party lines? Okay, you know what I'm talking about here? Anybody could listen in. The only way that you knew the call was for you was the recognizable long and shorts that were supposed to be yours, but anybody could pick up the phone and listen to what was going on, and people just love to do that. They love to hear what's going on. And I promise you, if what they heard was good news, nobody finds out about that. Nobody tells that. But the first thing that comes up that's bad, that one goes all over the community. So people listen to the party line. And if old Fred down the street... If he got drunk and the police came out to his house, that goes through the community like wildfire, just like lightning. Everybody knows about it. And by the time he gets all the way around, not only is Fred a drunk, but he's also a serial killer. We just love to tell those things. Why do people do it? Why do they desire to hurt and to damage? Why do people feed on the bad news of others and want to be the first ones to tell about it? That's the heart. Gossip stirs things up. Proverbs 6 to 27 said what? It's a burning fire. It's like James wrote Proverbs, but Solomon wrote Proverbs. He also said, those who sow discord among the brethren are abomination in God's eyes. Don't be guilty of an evil heart. An evil heart loves to stir up trouble. And the Bible says those who do are guilty of murder. Now folks, what we see here is Jesus' exposition of his own law. Arthur Pink got his opinion from Jesus. He, he read Jesus, and he said this commandment is not just about the outward act. It's about what's in your heart. It's about a bad heart, which is a murderous heart. So I have to ask you again, is it easy? Do you, do you keep these things so easily? Have you never been guilty of a bad temper? Have you never, been, have you never had a tongue that's sharp? Have you never told any juicy tidbit about anybody? I know you're guilty. You know you're guilty. God knows you're guilty. It's not easy. The standard's too high. And you'll never meet it. You'll never be like your Father in heaven who is perfect. Not in this life. And that's why you need Jesus. Thank God that He came to do for you what you cannot do. You can forget about going to heaven like a self-righteous Pharisee, like they thought they could. If obedience to the law is the key to getting into heaven, your obedience has condemned you before you start. Left to yourself, you're going to go to hell. Only Jesus can give you life. Only Jesus. Now, we still have one area to cover. As we focus on the four words, thou shalt not kill. We have one last thing, and that is that we need to reverse all of this. We need to be like God. And that means that we must be as much for life as God is for life. The command also includes this, that we do everything that we can to preserve life. And we're going to talk about that next time. This is a commandment that is powerful. It's a short command, but it packs a punch as powerful as me and Muhammad Ali. It's a very powerful command. It includes a lot of things. Next time, next week, we're going to see how do we reverse all of this and how do we become like God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the truth that comes from it. For Jesus Christ who reveals to us exactly what the law of God means and, Lord, how we can be saved. It's not through keeping these commandments. It's because Jesus kept them for us. And then when we become Christians, when we learn what we should do when we trusted him for our salvation and him alone for our salvation 
then we turn to the commandments as an expression of our love. Jesus said, if you love me, keep the commandments. So we pray for the lost today, for those who thought that they were doing a pretty good job, that they could be saved by the good things that they do. Jesus has ruled that out. And then we pray for the Christian who doesn't live by the law now, now that we're saved. And maybe we're saying, oh, well, salvation is by grace, so we don't need to worry about the law any longer. No, Jesus said, if you love me, keep the commandments. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to prove our love for you. Help us to reach the world who still believes, most of them believe, that they can be saved by being good people. And your word says, there is nobody that's good, not a single one. Help us to get the message out that only Jesus is good. There is one good but God. And Jesus said that. Lord, thank you for this. Bless us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.